Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Let's get going. Last week we talked about this idea of new beginnings or really of change and we're going to use that synonymously with growth because growth is change by definition. And last week we talked about the need for change because it's a new year and change happens. It's kind of one of those culturally ingrained moments when we look at the scope of our lives and say what needs to be reset? What needs to be tweaked? What needs to be changed? And so we're going to look at it from a perspective of the Bible and kind of big word sanctification, how God is growing you. And so last week, Nick got up here and he talked about a few different ways, that reasons why we don't change. We started by saying, hey, do you know you need to change? And so he said there are reasons why we don't and it's because you feel stagnant or you feel like you're too far gone or you feel ashamed and those are good enough reasons. Because one thing I know to be true is that my pursuit of Jesus, my following of Jesus, calls me to keep growing. Always. It never stops. You're never too good or too holy or look too much like Jesus. You are, I don't even know most of you, you are not there yet, don't take that personally, all right? You have a little ways to go, okay? And that's not a threat, that's hopeful if the God that you're trying to look like brings about hope in a dark world. Paul, the most Bible stud in the New Testament. Paul, who if I am halfway like when I die, Paul, the guy that wrote most of the New Testament, still didn't think he got there. In Philippians 3, he writes like this. He says, not that I have already attained this, but that is, I have not already been perfected, but I strive to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. He goes on to say, I'm single-minded forgetting the things that are behind and reaching out for the things that are ahead. Paul, Bible stud 101 says, I'm not there yet. And if he's not there yet, neither are we. So we believe the pursuit of Jesus is always a pursuit of change, of growth. We believe at Crossroads and we say it's one of our values that growing people change. So last week, we looked at some reasons why we don't change. Today, I want to look at how the change happens. I want to look at how we change. Because certain things cause us not even to try, but it's a different story when we try and change, when we try and grow, and we keep on failing. It's why the New Year's resolutions are always the same three, if you will. My three for the last decade has been learn some Spanish, learn the guitar, and look like Charlie did five pounds ago when I look in the mirror, all right? Now we're like four years removed. That's a lot of pounds added up, and I'm just saying it's going to start to happen at some point. But with every year that goes by, it doesn't. And I feel like more and more of a failure. So we're going to look today at what it means to grow, And how that growth happens, whether it's physically or more importantly, spiritually, because Jesus calls us to look like him. So what happens if we keep trying and we feel like we keep failing? I think we have to look at how it happens in the first place to understand it. And so for some of us, it's just a reminder of how change happens. And for some of us, it's an aha moment of I've forgotten. And for some of us, it might be the first time. But Jesus calls us to keep growing. Jesus calls us to keep pursuing him, to keep looking like him. And to do that this morning, we're going to look at the life of Peter. We talked about him a little last week. And we're going to look at four stories in the life of Peter. And we're going to talk about how he changed and when he changed, what motivated the change, and what didn't, and what he did when he failed. But before we do that, we're going to do what we do at Crossroads every Sunday morning. We've got two goals. 
We want to know God and experience God this morning. And we know God by opening the scripture and saying, God, you wrote about yourself. This is a good place to go. Because he said, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing for you. This is what I will do. And so we open the scripture and we see a God who's good, who's loving, who's near, all the different things that we talk about. And as we know more about God, the second thing comes in play. We experience God. Because full and true knowledge always ends in an increased influence in your life. You don't fully know something until you've felt it, until you've experienced it, until it's changed you. So our goal is not just to rack up Jeopardy knowledge of Jesus. Our goal this morning is to understand and grow his influence in our lives. Because that's our goal. That's what it means to know and experience this morning. And I don't believe you're here by accident. I believe because you showed up this morning, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's going to do a work in your spirit. And we're going to leave this place changed. Because that's what we're trying to do as we look more like Jesus. So that's going to take some work from us. So we're going to start off just by getting our hearts right. And we're going to pray a little bit, and I'm going to ask that if you're comfortable, say a little silent prayer, and just ask the Holy Spirit to get your spirit ready to hear the Word of God, to get your spirit ready to grow, not just listen passively, but listen actively as God's working in this space. And I'm going to ask that you pray for me that I do my job well. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful that we're here especially this Sunday morning. I'm thankful that we're here. I'm thankful for all the churches that gathered this Sunday morning in the midst of what happened last week, that they can proclaim the goodness and the hope that is God in the middle of dark situations and circumstances. I pray that people are encouraged as, as all of us show up to churches and say that Jesus is good and he's bigger than the darkness that we see. This morning, as we open your text and we talk about change, Holy Spirit, speak to us, guide us, change us. I'd encourage you to take a couple of seconds and just ask the Holy Spirit to do a work in your spirit this morning. I also ask that you pray for me, that I might do a good job in talking about the God of the Bible that we see that encourages the change and makes it possible. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. We're in it together. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in a few different places. We'll put some stuff up on the screens. If you're a Bible scholar, I want to impress your friends. You can flip there when we go there. Um, but we're going to look at four stories in the life of Peter specifically. And, and the first time we see Peter in the Bible is in Matthew 4. And it says it like this in Matthew 4, 17, 18, 19. It says, and he was... Walking by, Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. He said to them, follow me, and in turn, I will make you fishers of men. So the first time we see Peter, he's fishing with his brother, and Jesus is walking by, and Jesus looks at Peter, and he says this phrase. He says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. 
If you don't know the context of the Old Testament bearing weight on the New Testament, this just seems like he's saying, man, I'm going somewhere you want to join along. Are you free? But that's not what's happening here. To understand what's going on, you've got to understand who Jesus is and what it means when he asks Peter to come and follow. Jesus is a rabbi. He's a rabbi. He's a teacher of the law. Peter is not a rabbi. He's not in training to be a rabbi. He had already probably failed out of rabbi school. And to understand the weight of what Jesus asks of Peter, you have to understand the schooling of what it took to be a rabbi. Every Jewish mother wanted their boys to grow up and be a rabbi. Like every one of them. And it started when you were three or four years old. You went to school for about a year, year and a half, two years. And you learned the ways of God. You started with the first five books of the Bible. And as a young kid, you memorized the entire first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy. You memorized it. And if if you did a good enough job, if you scored high enough on your testing, you think star testing is stressful. If you did good enough, they said, come back and do the next round. If not, they looked at you and said, go home. Do what your dad does. He didn't make the cut. So then you started the second round, which is another couple years, and you focused mostly on the history and the prophets. And so you would memorize the rest of the Old Testament. At this point, you have memorized Genesis all the way through the end of the Old Testament. That is a lot of memorization. I love it. I don't necessarily think, you know, you get these people, and I grew up in a Christian school, so I had Bible memory verse tests, you know? And sometimes we use Bible memorization to indicate how much you love Jesus. I don't think we can do that. But I think what it does show is it shows what's important to you or has influence over you, or it shows what's routine for you. That's the stuff that we remember, is what's important or what's routine for us. So for example, I can't quote you Genesis, but there's a book I read to my daughter every night that I can dang sure quote all you guys. It's called The Going to Bed Book. Have you guys, you guys know this book? Some of you, the sun has set not long ago. Now everybody goes down below to take a bath in one big tub with soap all over. Scrub, scrub, scrub. What are we teaching our children? All right? They hang their towels on the wall and find pajamas big and small. With some up top and some beneath, they brush and brush and brush their teeth. And when the moon is on the rise, they all go up to exercise. You don't work out after shower before bed. This book is teaching our kid lies. This is literally how I read it to my daughter. (laughs) She's going to need some therapy. I have a running commentary on all the kids' books. (laughs) And it keeps talking about how they go to bed at night. I I say that to say this, that we memorize what's valuable to us because it is what I do with my daughter when I put her to bed. It helps her get to bed, which is super valuable, and it's something I do every single night. So regardless of how much Bible you know, we can all get down with the fact that these people valued it, and it was a part of their everyday life. So if you made it past that stage, you get to come back for one more. You're probably 13, 14 years old at this point. And you joined a part of the schooling called the Talmudim, which is Hebrew for disciple. And you'd go to a rabbi and you'd sit there and listen to him teach and you'd learn how he taught. And if you liked him, you'd go up to him and you'd say, can I follow you? And if he thought, and this is key, if he thought that you could be just like him, if he saw capacity in you that was up to his capacity, he'd look at you and say, come, follow me. Or go home and do what your dad does. So when Jesus, the rabbi, goes to Peter, the fisherman, and says, come follow me, there's more weight there than I'm a little bored and I need some people, you know? There's massive amounts of, Peter at this point was a fisherman. He already failed out of rabbinical school at this point, told to go home and do what his dad did. And Jesus, the rabbi, shows up and says, come and follow me. 
It's a huge moment. That's why it says in the next verse that Peter left immediately and started to follow. If you don't understand the context, you get this false sense that Jesus had this twinkle in his eye like Santa, and he just couldn't deny that he was special. He had a lot of context leading in to what Jesus called him to do. And make no mistake about it, if you know anything about the story of Jesus, Jesus was a special kind of rabbi. There were rabbis that actually went to school and rabbis that just did the job really well and you couldn't deny their gifting. So for example, there's pastors that are the same way. There are pastors that went to seminary and have the degrees and the stamp and the diplomas and paid a lot of money to love Jesus. How you doing? You know? And then there are pastors that are just good at it. Oswald Chambers in the 1800s. There's a guy down the street that I've heard does a really good job. His name's Matt something. I don't know, Chambers. I don't know. He um, is just gifted at it. And, And so what happens is you see and you cannot deny the unbelievable weight or influence of God on these people. Jesus, when he walked and talked and taught, people stopped and said, this guy is special. In Mark 1, it says that people were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught them as one who had authority, not as one of the teachers of the law. And you see this theme that where Jesus go, people recognize his special divine authority to teach, to be a rabbi of the law. I actually see it all throughout the New Testament with different sets of people, not just his disciples. It's not a circular argument. It's not like his family saying, yes, you're a great singer. Try it for American Idol. It's other people saying, this is who Jesus is. We see his disciples say it. Some lawyers say it in Matthew 22. There's some ordinary just people that see it. Rich men see it. The Pharisees see it. The Sadducees see it. All these people saw that Jesus was a rabbi. And this rabbi, this rabbi stopped Peter down and said, come be like me. Change and grow into who I am. The goal was to be just like Jesus. And Peter was on board. The problem was... (laughs) It didn't happen for a while. So I'll go to story number two. There's a lot of stories you can talk about with Peter, but I think one of the most popular one, they're about a year and a half in of following this. But a year and a half in, halfway through Jesus's impre- like present influence on his disciples, and they just get done with something, and Jesus says, I'll catch up on the other side of this sea, this body of water. You know the story, I bet, if you've been to church. And so they're out at night. The water's choppy. It's the disciples. And all of a sudden, they see this like ghostly, distant figure coming towards them. And they get a little afraid, as you would. And it says there's this person, and he's walking on the water. What? On the water. Off the, on the water without a life vest, you know? And Peter cries out. He says, Lord, is that you? And Jesus says, yes. And then Peter because his goal was to be just like Jesus is, can I join you? Fully believing that if Jesus could walk on water and his job as a disciple was to be just like his rabbi could do the same thing, Jesus says, come on, because this is what I've called you into. So Peter starts running out on the water growing up as a kid at a pool in Texas. And we would do this thing where you would like run off the diving board and see how many steps you could take and pretend you were doing it too, you know? It's like the hook moment of you're doing it, Peter, but it never really happened for me. And so Peter starts running out on the water towards Jesus. I think this story, without going into too much detail, if you've heard it before, is, is, is taught, and, and in my opinion, maybe mistaught a little bit. Because I've heard it so many times, if you don't know the end of it, Peter starts sinking when he gets near Jesus. And growing up, it was always, see, he didn't have enough faith in Jesus. And so have more faith. Keep your eyes upon Jesus, you know. And that, that's fine. Those are good lessons. But I just don't think that's what happens in Peter's story. I think it's all about him becoming like Jesus because I don't think he doubts Jesus because when he's drowning, right away he looks up and says, Lord, save me. <laughs> he, he puts his faith in Jesus to provide and save, never, never uh, faltered. I think he doubted his ability to be like his rabbi. 
I think he doubted his ability to change and become who Jesus called him to be. We're a year and a half in, and seemingly Peter's not changing into the rabbi that he thought he was going to become or who he was called to be. And so what I think you see with the person of Peter is really a conversation on how change happens, how we look more like Jesus. Because if we keep trying and keep failing, we start believing that it'll never happen, that it can't. Because sin still exists in my life like it does yours. What we get to is really this conversation on method versus motivation. Because Peter, being a good Jew, really believed that methods change your motivation. I believe it too when we talk about change. So for example, this about 10 months ago, I told my wife, I was like, you know what? I, I don't know if you guys know this. I have like seven different apps for workouts on my phone that I've never opened. You know how you can call like the app cluster or something? It's called Fatty Fat Fat on my phone. And all of them in there are different workout apps, right? And I've never opened any one of them. I have this workout subscription thing and I think I'm going to. And I just think if I get the right tool, it'll help me. It'll save me. It'll motivate me to do it. It's about, I don't know, 10 months ago, I said, hey, sir, I'm going to buy this workout mat for the garage. Game, game changer game changer. It's like 130 bucks. It's probably as big as this little platform here, like, you know, size wise. I'm going to get it. I'm going to work out every morning. You know what that is right now? In the Amazon box in my garage, (laughs) you know? And every time she just kind of looks at him, don't say anything. It's happening. It will happen. I promise. If I get the right tools, if I have the right method that will change my motivation and then promote change in my life. Good Jews even believed if you have the right method that'll change your motivation. They were given 613 laws in the Old Testament by God. 613. That's a lot. They said, it is not enough. Let's make some more. So for example, we're going to have a three-week series on Sabbath in two weeks. Um, it's on literally rest. And I know what you're thinking. A series on rest. Let's just stay home and rest and practice what you preach. Don't do that. Um, so we're going to have a series on Sabbath. And that was really one of the tenement laws to the Jewish people. It was a sign of the covenant that Israel made with Moses. It was a really, really big deal. If you broke it, it was a really big deal. Jesus gets in trouble for it quite a bit. And so what they did was they said, well, we have this desire to work on the Sabbath, but in order to fight that, in order to not break this law, in order to honor God, we're going to make all these laws around this one law. And if we have enough methods around the motivation, then we won't do it. So they had 30-ish laws that said, this is how you Sabbath. In far as like what you could eat and how you could prepare it and how far you could walk and what you could pick up and walk with. They had all these methods that said, if we just do all these things, it will make our heart not want to work on Sabbath because Jesus called it holy and said it's blessed. We're people that easily default to methods over motivation because changing our methods are easier, just easier, you know? And we think that it works. And, and oftentimes I think we run into this problem where we can change all the methods that we want, but until we look at the motivation, we don't see actual lasting change. I think you can look at modernity as a, a really good example of this. When I say modernity, I mean kind of how we thought as a people for a couple hundred years. After about 1700s in the Enlightenment, we thought that the accruing of knowledge was our best good. And we saw evil and darkness in the world. And we said, we can think our way out of evil and darkness. We can change the fundamental nature of human beings from not good to good by knowing more. The death of modernity was World War II in concentration camps. Literally, that's what most scholars say, is that we gained all this knowledge and we thought this was making us a better people. And then we saw the atrocities of what happened in the 30s and 40s. And we realized that's not working. That has not changed who we are. We are still a broken people that take advantage of darkness has not gone anywhere. 
And I think you can look at shootings, whether church shootings or not. And you can have all the best methods and all the best security means in place, but it doesn't change people's hearts. You can mitigate the pain of it, but I don't know if you can stop it in the first place. We have all these methods that we think changes people. And I don't know if that's what the Bible says about change in the first place, because when the Bible talks about change, it talks about something deeper. It talks about something richer. It talks about more than just methods and actions. Jesus even said it in Matthew 5. He does this several times. We looked at it last spring. He said, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to desire has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's saying the change isn't about action. It's about motivation. It's not necessarily about method. It's about your desire for your action in the first place. He's calling us into a deeper level of change. We see it, Nick brought up an example last week with David Old Testament, just bastion. He was the height of the Israeli power, of the Jewish power in the Old Testament, what they wanted to be again. And he cheated on his wife. He had an affair. And when he's found out, he looks to God and he says these words, create in me, we sang it, a clean heart. And that word heart has a lot to do with how change happens in the Bible. Proverbs 4 says it like this. It says, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it are the sources of life. The word heart in the Old Testament means very different things than probably we think of when we think of heart. When we think of heart, when I think of heart, you wear your heart on your sleeve. Heart is more emotional. Head is more rational. If you're a type A like me, then you probably think head is the place to go and heart is the thing we don't talk about because it's weaker. That's not true, but that's what I am defaulted to believe. We have this difference between head and heart. In the Old Testament, actually, in the Hebrew, they didn't have a word or a concept for brain because they didn't know anything about it yet. So literally everything was your heart. Your heart was absolutely your desires. Psalm 69, scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comfort, but I found none. But heart was also outside of feeling what you knew. Proverbs 2, wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant in your soul. But it wasn't simply just what your emotions were and what you knew is what drove you deep down internally. In Psalm 37, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So your heart drives your emotion and your intellect and your desires. Your heart is the clearest depiction of who you are and who you are becoming in every facet of your being. Tim Keller says, the heart... um, Really, what the heart loves most and trusts, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find desirable, and the will finds doable. So when the Bible talks about change, it talks about it from this idea that we need to change not just our methods, but our motivation. It's a heart issue. Here's the problem. The Bible also says that your default nature of your heart is not good. Jeremiah 17 puts it like this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans says, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. The case that the scripture makes when we want to change into the person and work of Jesus, when we keep trying to change, we keep seeing failure, it says that your heart starts in not a good place. And what that means is that you are, Romans says, enslaved to the dark parts of it. I was talking to a friend the other day just in this concept of kind of being enslaved to things and what it looked like. Because we don't use those words a ton anymore. It means that you want to change, but somehow can't change. It's that time when we keep failing, wondering why it's not happening for us. 
And she said she goes to the grocery store. And when she goes, she buys like sometimes these really sweet, sugary, just not good for you and everybody knows it things, you know, but she only wants a piece. And so she'll go home and she'll take a bite and right away she'll take a bite and she'll throw her the trash, right? And she'll walk away like I beat it. You know the bad part? She says, often, more often than not, I go back to the trash and pick it out of the trash and start eating it. And I was like, I want to judge you, but I've done something like that before, you know? And don't lie to me and say you have not. It's that idea that I know I want to change, I need to change, but I can't seem to find the capacity to change because my heart, my motivation is pulled towards something I don't want it to be pulled towards. How does change happen? Third story of Peter. I think it's one of these moments. It's a very popular one as well. It's when they're in the upper room and Jesus is about to go to the cross. And and Jesus looks at Peter and says, you will deny me three times. And Peter says, there is no way that's going to happen. I know you're God. You missed this one, right? He says, there is no way I'm about to deny. You are my Lord and my Savior and my Master and my Rabbi. And you said, come and follow. And this is three years later, not a year and a half. This is three years later. I'm closer than I was before. There's no way this is going to happen. I can tell you right now. Let me read to you the account from Luke. It says, so they arrested Jesus and led him to the high priest's home. And Peter followed at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it, and Peter joined them there. A servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, she said, this man is one of Jesus' followers. But Peter denied it. Woman, he said, I don't even know him. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, you must be one of them. No man, I'm not, Peter retorted. About an hour later, someone else insisted, this man must be one of them because he's a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately he was still speaking in the rooster crowed. At that moment, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. And that's what happens when we keep trying to look more like Jesus and we keep failing. We start to believe the lie that it'll never happen. That we'll always keep failing. And we try and change our method again and again and again and again. We try and change and change and change. And sometimes change is hard. It feels like we beat our head against the wall. But the beautiful thing in the middle of trying to change and sometimes failing is not thinking, how can I do better the next time? It's remembering what God has done for us. Because our hearts are dark. They drive what we do. They're enslaved to sin. But he also goes to say this. This is Ezekiel 36 when God is outlying his plan of redemption for his people. He proclaims, this is what I'm going to do for you. He says, I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to carefully observe my ordinances. The beauty of the gospel, and you understand the depth of the word heart, is that God doesn't just say you're going to change your rhythms. I will change your inclination to not be kept in bondage to the things and the people we don't want to be anymore. He promises that in and through Jesus that resurrected from the dead, we have a new way to live. That's why he calls it freedom. And so he says in Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's this beautiful truth. 
It's this beautiful truth that change comes when we realize that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're no longer held captive to the sin that was our past, but can now choose to live into the promise of what Jesus called us into when he said to you and me, like he said to Peter, come and follow me. We're set free from it. And in the middle of banging my head against the wall and trying method after method after method, sometimes I need to remember that I'm set free free through the power and work of the Holy Spirit in my life because Jesus already did it. It's this beautiful depiction. It's this beautiful story. It's this overwhelmingly good truth that I'm already set free. So the question is, do you believe it? Do you know it? Do you live that way? I had the same friend who um, would put the thing in the trash can and she'd go back in, you know, and guiltily eat more. She said, now you know what I do? Now I buy the thing still, I take one bite, but before I put it in the trash can, I squeeze Blue Dawn soap all over the top of it, right? You know what that does? Sets her free from coming back and eating anymore. I didn't ever think there was a correlation between the blood of Jesus and Blue Dawn, but you know, hey. It's this beautiful depiction of what it's like to be free from. That I couldn't get away, I couldn't get away, I couldn't, and now, now, now I can. Because of what Jesus did for me. Not because my will got any stronger, I tried different methods and tools. Let me just be really clear here. There's a great place for methods. We're going to talk about spiritual disciplines in a couple weeks. It doesn't mean we don't have things that remind us that our motivation has now changed. It just means that we have the right order of those things. That change comes through looking at the motivation given by the power of the Holy Spirit, not through trying different things to hopefully change our motivation in the first place. I had a friend of mine in college who um, his password, his computer, he would get on his computer and sometimes, because he was a 19, 20-year-old kid, he'd look at not great things to look at on his computer. So he made his login a scripture that basically said, if you lust after something, pluck your eye right out, you know? And, and what I think was good about that was, it wasn't like that was changing his motivation. It was reminding him of who God called him to be. The methods that we have can remind us of our new motivation in Christ to live for Christ because we're called to look like Christ, to be just like him when he says, come and follow. Story number four with Peter. It's my favorite one because it's where we see change. After (coughs) Jesus raises from the dead, appears to a bunch of people, he gathers his disciples on a mountain 40 days later. And you probably know the story. If you don't, he starts talking to them. And he's saying, hey, I'm going to leave. And, and I'm betting, I'm betting, wasn't there. I'm betting that Peter says, no, you're not. You're good. You're here, you know? And he says, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to give you my spirit that equips and empowers your new heart to live towards me, to pull towards me and not towards who you were, that sets you free, that rose from the dead and is more powerful than all the poles towards who you were, instead points towards who you were supposed to be. And he says in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses all over the world. So it sets up this tension. They stay locked in this room for a while. And finally the Holy Spirit comes in Acts 2. The Spirit of God that empowers us to live into our new hearts, new selves, new lives, to look like Jesus. And the Holy Spirit comes, and, and I don't know a better way to describe it than, than just chaotic. Because as the Holy Spirit comes, people start speaking in tongues, and they're pretty excited. And so it's actually one of the festivals in the Jewish faith. There's a few of them. And there's a smaller number. We have to actually show up in Jerusalem. This was one of the smaller numbers in Acts 2. My point is, it's crowded. And you get a bunch of these Jews 
that show up in Jerusalem and then they see this fanfare of 120 people speaking in tongues and proclaiming that God is good and they look at these guys and they say, you must be drunk. This is the Bible. And Peter says, it's nine in the morning and no. And he says, but let me tell you what we're doing, why we're doing what we're doing. So what I love about this story is that quite clearly what we see is the change that happens when the Holy Spirit indwells and prompts, equips, and empowers. Because Peter, only a couple months before then, was questioned when Jesus was suffering, when his rabbi was suffering, when his Lord was being beaten within an inch of his life, they asked him, are you with that guy? And he said, I don't even know who that is, three different times. Three different times. He said, I don't know who that is. Get away from me. And he got increasingly more hostile. This is with many, many more thousands of his countrymen. And they say, are you guys drunk? What are you doing? And he says, let me tell you what I'm doing. I'm just going to read what he says. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man clearly attested to you by God with powerful deeds, wonders, and miraculous signs. That God performed among you and through him, just as you yourselves know, this man who was handed over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you executed by nailing him to a cross at the hands of the Gentiles. But God raised him up, having released him from the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held in its power. He goes on and says, this Jesus God raised up and we are all witnesses of it. So then, exalted at the right hand of God and having received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he has poured out what you both see and hear. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know beyond a doubt that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And we see Peter stepping into his calling to reflect his rabbi for one of the first times. Because God says, I'm going to give you a new heart and equip you through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And it says right after that, that day, about 3,000 people were added or believed in Jesus. <laughs> so I ask what changed in Peter. Probably wasn't a method or a rhythm. God changed his heart. The question is, do we believe that God changed ours? And do we press into that and say, I know that because Jesus died and rose again, I know that because the Spirit indwells me, I will not be held captive to who I was. I can't point towards who God called me to be when my rabbi said, come and follow one commentator said this about Peter. Yet Jesus named Peter in view of what he would become by the power of God, not what he was then. Another one, FF3, says this about us. No one can foresee when he brings a man or a woman to Jesus what Jesus will make of that person. It's this beautiful picture of the power of change. The power of change that so often we believe or want to believe is just about what we do and not why we do, but the rhythms we have and not the motivating factors behind the rhythms in the first place. Because there's one thing I know, is that I try to change a lot and I set resolutions and I try and look more like Jesus because I know the scriptures and because I know Jesus. I know that he overcame and that because of that he empowered me to walk and be just like him. And we get the ability with this new heart, with this new life, with this new draw, not towards sin, but towards life, we get this ability to say there's more and there's better. This ability to say, God called me to be something, to show light in a dark place, and I'm gonna keep doing it. We get this ability to be just like our Savior. It's why we grow in the first place. So the simple question this morning is, do you believe it? Where's your heart? What's it pulling you towards? 
and know as a follower of Jesus, God has given you the heart that's for him. Press in this morning and watch what he can do. Let me pray for us. God, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that you called us like you called Peter. I'm thankful for the overpowering beauty that you use us in your gospel. I'm thankful that the power of Jesus and the Spirit is bigger and better than the power of what held us back in the past. I'm thankful, God, that you are good, that we get to live and walk in a new way with a new motivation, as the Bible says, with a new heart, that all of our desires and our drives and our emotions and our intellect can now be set free from what was and point to what is, the light in the darkness because we live in a world that needs to hear it, that needs to see it, that needs to know that you have called us out to something bigger and better. And as we change and look more like Jesus, people will see exactly that, more of him. May that be our prayer this morning. Pray these things in his name.